Hi, I'm Kenna Lenhoff. Hi, I'm Cynthia Sherpet. Welcome to This One Woman. We are a monthly variety show at the Hop Leaf in Chicago. It's the fourth Monday of every month, and for each of our shows, our performers are inspired by a famous woman that was chosen by the audience the month before. This month's Woman of Honor is... Ethel Merman! There's no business like show business like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. No way could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra bow. There's no people like show people. They smile when they are low. Yesterday they told you you would not go far. That night you open and there you are. Next day on your dressing room they is it that we did Ethel Merman for March? I've been going around the house doing an Ethel voice about everything, which is pretty amazing, and my husband is super into it. I'm sure he loves it, because nothing... I think he's a little sick of it. Nothing's funner than hearing somebody talk like Ethel Merman all the time. I know. You know? So good. Like, we have a show coming soon. That's not really a good Ethel. (laughs) Talking to my cat like Ethel... Ben Church. <laughs> I do love your cat's name. It's very good. Thank you. Yeah, so it's kind of cool that we did Ethel Merriman, like, right after doing Bernadette Peters. As people might remember. I know, these two, like, musical theater divas. Exactly. A lot of musical the theaters. from each other. Yeah, and that Bernadette Peters played the role of um, Annie Oakley um, later in her career, and Ethel Merriman originated that role. Ethel originated a lot of things. She also, um, which I brought up, you know, worked in the show, is that she worked as a secretary until she had her big break at 21. Yeah. It's like, you know, worked slave. Good to know we're not the only ones just, like, working in an office, making it work. Exactly. Working at an office, working so hard and diligently, knowing that someday her break would come, and it did. She also was performing at nightclubs. Do you think she went around her office just singing things like, it's time to make copies? Probably, but back in like the, that time period where they're making copies, or what did they call the carbon copy thing at the time? Or she's like, I gotta oh, yeah. make a what ditto. Do they use ditto machines <laughs> in offices too? Because they did in schools. <laughs> but, I gotta work on my shorthand. Which... It's important because she took her own notes all through her life because of her experience as a secretary. She never found anyone better than herself. All right. So our first performer of the night was Justin Flowers. Justin is a storyteller stand-up, and he teaches storytelling classes at Cook County Jails. He was lucky to find some haikus 
written by Ethel Merman. Here's Justin. Uh, I've had the pleasure of doing this show a few times now, and, and one thing I always try to do is uh, really dig deep. And so I was at the Edgewater branch of Chicago Public Library, sifting through the, uh, th thank, thank you. <laughs> sifting through the, the books when I, became, or when I came across um, what could best be described as a, a dusty tome. And so I opened it, and what I found inside was something that only could be, could be really described as, as particularly groundbreaking when it comes to Ethel Merman. Because we all know that she loved to sing and she loved to act. But one thing that I don't think we all know is that she loved to write haikus. <laughs> hundreds of them, literally hundreds of haikus. And I selected a, a handful uh, that I wish to share with you. I think it's important. <laughs> Set the tone. As Kenna pointed out, uh, she grew up in, uh, outside New York, right outside of New York in a suburb, uh, in a very religious family, strict religious family that uh, forced her to go to church all day, every Sunday. This is Ethel Merman's first recorded that we know of, right? Haiku. Sunday sun shines bright with the Lord from dawn till night. Jesus, take me now. <laughs> early, very early in her career, before she was 21, she, she had a secretarial role um, where she would do that during the day and she would perform at nightclubs, uh, you guessed it, at night. Um, <laughs> She had a particular boss who apparently was out of town a lot, and she really appreciated that, uh, so she wrote a haiku. Another late night, when the big boss is away, the merman will lay. Um, I'm sure we'll hear a lot about her, her stage success, of course, of course, but her early stage success made her wanted in the, the movie scene as well. Um, and one of her first roles was in uh, We're Not Dressing, where she uh, didn't star, but she was alongside uh, Bing Crosby, was one person in particular. Welcome to LA, sang for 40 elephants. Better make the cut. Like Kenneth stated, she was married four, she married four times. Uh, perhaps the most infamous, Ernest Borgnine. They were married for, I think, 38 days. She wrote a haiku. Wed Ernest Borgnine. How I love thee. Let's count ways. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> 38 days. One, one interesting fact about uh, Ethel Merman is, is uh, due to her like, secretarial experience and all of this, she um, took notes of everything. Like she, 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 she had a, an extensive diary. Uh, she took notes in her own business meetings, things like that. Up to and including 
extensive notes regarding her own dental records. She felt compelled one day to uh, write a haiku. <laughs> Much pain when I chew. Whole and second bicuspid. Nitrous oxide. Yum. She sang uh, Everything's Coming Up Roses at Ronald Reagan's inauguration. Therefore, she, so she wrote a haiku. Belting for Reagan. Trickle-down economics. The cowboy we need. It's debatable. It's debatable. You guys have been great. Thank you. Um, we'll put one uh, final haiku out here. Again, Kenna stated she performed well into her 70s. Um, and then she, she, she called it quits. She hung it up. You know? And this was obviously difficult for her, so she wrote a haiku. Final curtain call. Career blessed by God above. Suck it, Borgnine. <laughs> Wouldn't let it go. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Our next performer is Joelle Munchak. She is not only a storyteller, she's also a triathlete, which I am very impressed with because that's three whole sports in one. And tonight she's telling us a story about big city dreams. She had big city dreams. Here's Joelle. Thank you. Yeah, I've been here a few times, and I thank you very much, Kenneth. I've entitled this New York Dreams. I grew up in a small town outside a small city in northeastern Pennsylvania that was only a two-hour car ride from New York City. The Big Apple was an ever-present golden city on the hill beyond my reach. I was so close to it, though. I swore I can feel the tremors of New York City's electric energy through the ground as I lay in the grass in my boring backyard, daydreaming about the day I would live in New York and be a Broadway star. Those boring backyard days were the days before the internet. And cable TV was a luxury my family couldn't afford when it was first available. My knowledge in New York City then came from sources that were real. Articles from the Sunday paper were the listing of the current Broadway shows and, and sources that were not so real. Old black and white movies, song and dance pictures that played on public television, and film adaptations of Broadway musicals. When my family finally got cable and HBO, hello, I remember one of the first movies I watched over and over and over again, besides Flash Gordon, was Fame. I wanted, nay, longed to, be, to live in New York City and go to the Fame High School. There were a few times during my small town childhood that I visited New York City, sorta. My father was an avid Yankees fan and a couple times a year we'd pack up the car to head out to the Bronx and watch a game in the house that Ruth built. My parents would caution us kids to keep the doors locked and the windows rolled up as we slowly made our way into, onto Jerome Avenue. Once we parked, my parents held us tight until we had our tickets torn and we were safely in the confines of the stadium. My high school year solidified my fantasy of living in New York City because once a year I spent a few days at a student council conference at the United Nations International School. This was a private school where mostly the UN diplomats kids attended. 
Those three days and three nights were my ticket to freedom and showed me what I thought was the ideal big city life. I stayed with one of the Eunice kids at their house or their apartment without a lawn. What? Rode the subway, discussed world issues on the floor of the United Nations, United Nations as only self-important naive teenagers could and played at night with these outrageously hip and so very cool kids who were mature beyond their years. There was so much freedom of expression and ideas and so many different types of people and they were from everywhere. Oh, I'm so gonna live here soon, my precious, soon. To understand why New York City was my golden city on the hill, let me describe that small town outside the small city, only a two hour car ride away. It was drab and depressed, both economically and spiritually. Despite being several hundred miles north of the Mason-Dixon line, you can, spot, you can spot Confederate flags and gun racks on trucks. Basically, it was MAGA country before the red baseball caps. Although coal industry left the, left the area 50 years prior and railroads 50 years before that, the pre-MAGA folks still reeled from those industries' demises two to three generations out. And while I didn't see any white hoods and there were hardly any blacks or Latinos in the area, the natives blamed everything and to this day still blame minorities for their lack of prosperity. So I knew at a very early age I needed to get out of that place. And when I turned 18 and headed to college, I left Pennsylvania so quick that there are track marks scorched into the earth until you hit Chicago. After a, a month after I graduated college, however, I interviewed for a job in New York City at Carnegie Hall. If I got this job, I would be fulfilling that lifelong dream. I'd be in the arts, too. I was excited to be at the interview and started to plan a bit of logistics, relocating to New York. I would live, to, live temporarily with my aunt and uncle in New Jersey and commute in until I found a place in the city. It was a long shot type of job that I, that I actually would get. But what else was an English major going to do? So I went to the interview. You all heard the saying that love will find you when you're not looking for it. And although that has never happened to me personally in my love life, it did happen to me when I got to college in Chicago. I fell in love with Chicago. I didn't expect to fall in love, and I didn't realize, realize how hard I fell until I was driving back to Chicago from that Carnegie interview on Interstate 80. At a rest stop outside of Cleveland, I learned I got the job, and I cried all through Ohio. New York City is not an easy place to live. It's expensive. My salary at Carnegie Hall barely covered my rent, so I took an under-the-table job as an answering service operator in Queens on the weekends. It's a crowded city. There are no alleys, so garbage is, is in cans outside your front stoop, making it extra smelly in the summer. There's a city income tax. There's a lack of green space, so in the summer the heat is absorbed by all that concrete and steel and it snaps back, you, back at you at night. Yes, in New York City, the nights are literally hotter than the days. The people are rude and so many dicks. I saw so many dicks on the subway. <laughs> Literal dicks, as in pervs, flashing and manhandling their junk. But sometimes, I turn wistful and nostalgic when a Seinfeld or Broad City episode comes on, and, and I turn mama bear defensive when someone badmouths New York City. Where else could I bump into Gregory Hines at a bookstore one day and later that week be offered a coffee by Sidney Pollack? 
My Carnegie Hall year-long stint gave me so much access to not only Carnegie Hall concerts, but to Lincoln Center events. I impressed my boyfriend at the time when I called the Met Opera for a sold-out performance of Die Zabelfluda and got two house seats at the center of the main floor. House seats for you uninitiated are those seats that are held in reserve for VIPs. When someone says something is sold out, don't believe them. It never, ever, ever is. However, you have to have the right access and who controls those house seats to get them. And so working at Carnegie Hall, although at poverty wages, it did have its perks. But after three years of the grind, one year at Carnegie Hall and two years at a, at a top law firm as a paralegal, it was time to move back to Chicago. After all, I was still in love with it. After law school, I sometimes got headhunter calls and job postings in New York. I never considered it. It was a tough so city to be a lawyer in. I saw the damage up close and personal. No thanks. I turned, returned to New York, though, 13 years ago to perform at an improv festival. I took the subway from LaGuardia into Manhattan because, hey, I used to live here. Yo, I know what I'm doing. On my subway car, a red-headed woman with an Avenue Q t-shirt sat across from me. Oh my God, she's one of the puppet masters from the original cast of Avenue Q. I recognized her pitch from this, uh, picture from the CD. Ignoring all city slicker instincts to ignore her and let her be, I channeled my inner hayseed and asked, hey, aren't you in the cast of Avenue Q? Yes, she was. We proceeded to talk all through our ride into Manhattan, and then she invited me to Bryant Park, where she was uh, heading there to perform in a free lunchtime performance of all these Broadway shows. Come backstage and say hi. What? Only in New York. After settling at my hotel in Chelsea, I walked up to Bryant Park in Midtown, and I felt a long-forgotten rush of excitement. And oddly enough, I also felt peace and calm. Those awkward years in my early 20s were behind me and I realized I felt comfortable in my own skin in this crazy, crazy city. This used to be my city. This was really a cool place to be. I went backstage to the backstage area at Bryant Park, kind of like the Petrillo Music Shell in uh, Grant Park, to see my new friend. And there, there she was. Joelle, Joelle, you're, you're here. I'm so glad you made it. We chatted briefly until she had to go on stage, and I went out to the audience to try to find a seat. Now, it was pretty crowded, and I was going to give up finding a space to sit when a woman with two preteen girls and her elderly mother invited me to sit on their blanket. They didn't speak great English, uh, or at least the older uh, women did not speak great English, but they invited me to sit down and enjoy the day. And as I sat in the middle of this very <laughs> crowded crowd on a hot summer day with the sun shining, I thought back to my boring bark, uh, backyard days in that small town outside of a small city in northeastern Pennsylvania. And when the first musical note hit, I closed my eyes and I felt once again that electric energy of New York through the ground. I may love Chicago, but there is always a place in my heart that will belong to my first love, New York City. Thank you. I'm so glad we have our next performer. It is Heather Morgan. Heather is one of my favorite performers. She's a stand-up comedian who traveled all the way in from the far, far suburbs. 
Here's Heather. So um, when Kenna sent the email for Ethel Merman, I was kind of like, who the fuck is that? And then um, I Googled, because at first I was thinking Irma Bombeck. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, this is a who. And, um, and so then I'm like, oh, it's not Irma Bombeck, it's Ethel Merman. Um, yeah, I, I'm like, wow, I need to learn more people, okay? Um, and so as it was mentioned, she grew up religious, and so did I. So these, like, all day at church on Sundays is nothing. I went to Sunday school, Sunday morning church, Sunday, or prayer meeting before Sunday night church, and then Sunday night church. Um, and, yeah, so I grew up religious. Um, my dad was, like, Sunday school superintendent, so we had to get to church, like, early before Sunday school. And it was, like, a shit ton of church. And, um, and in fact, I even... Um, Got a call from God. I should have let it go to voicemail, but uh, like, um, and so I started to go into ministry, and so that's my background. Um, and I identify with her because even with her conservative upbringing, she was considered brash, vulgar sometimes, and like that's totally me. Like, um, the other day I was talking to my mom, like, mind you, I grew up religious. My mom's a little more progressive these days. We were talking politics, and she said, we were talking about Joe Biden and then Stacey Abrams. She's like, I don't know if that's the best choice for him. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? And then it was like, I mean, why do you think that, Mom? Um, <laughs> but it was like a sudden outburst of just like, and I try to be respectful. I know my mom doesn't like the fuck word. She, I use other words, but I try to be respectful. But that one just caught me off guard because I was like, bitch, please. Like, um, but... Some of the stories I was reading, because yes, I did too, also um, consult Wikipedia, um, guilty as charged, um, is, so she would like, she screamed a dirty joke across the room to somebody during like a formal event. Um, she was on a show and um, she swore, I think she said something like hell or something. And the lady's like, um, oh honey, you know what that means? And she shook a little can at her for a swear jar. It's like, how much would it t cost me to tell you to go fuck yourself? And so that's totally something I would say to my husband. So, um, and I guess maybe she told her husband that, and that's why she had so many. Um, but, you know, I, I really was like, oh. Um, and, and during that time, it was unheard of for women to be so brash and, and outspoken and vulgar and and be one of the guys, so to speak, in terms of humor. Um, because that was, I mean, this was pre-Amy Schumer, obviously. <laughs> like, um, this was groundbreaking. Um, we've talked about any Get Your Gun. And so when I think of any Get Your Gun, I, um, my 21st birthday in college, my, my best friend Maddie got me and my friend, whose birthday's the day after me, Tickets to Annie Get Your Gun. It was a surprise. It was in Chicago. Yeah. And he's like, and they were really good seats. But his reason was, you talked about going out and getting wasted on your 21st birthday. I wanted you to do this instead. I'm like, does he not know I'll be 21 tomorrow and the next day and the next day? Like, like it's not like my one shot, you know? But, I mean, very sweet gesture. Um, but he kind of missed the mark. Like... Like, I don't know. Um, and 
when she was married to Ernest Borgnine, to show kind of the love of why it was a short marriage, um, she met with a director and she was going on and like he said, like, I had the face of a 20 year old, the body of a 30 year old, like, and he's like, did he talk about your old cunt? And he said, and she's like, no, he didn't mention you at all. Um, so I, I liked her quick wit and her comebacks. Um, Cause that is, again, very much as the kind of shit I say to people, especially my husband. Um, but, but the really thing, so her music, I can't believe I'm saying this. I've got music, I've got, I don't know, rhythm. rhythm. I'm like, fuck, I've got my cancer. Who could ask for anything more? Um, okay, changed it a little bit. So, um, so she died of cancer and um, I also have cancer. Um, I was actually diagnosed with cancer in the month of cancer. So that's like a golden birthday or something. It's like, like my lucky day. And um, on top of that, I also have MS. So it's like MS and cancer, what are the odds? So I'm going on Vegas, y'all. Like winner, winner, chicken dinner. Um, but I, I, I said, the thing with cancer, I mean, cancer's hard. So hence I forgot song lyrics that are very basic. So thank y'all for helping me out. Um, Cause chemo brain is real. Kenna. Um, but the thing is, is that I said, if cancer is going to take the hair on my head, and it did, it's grown back, but if chemo is going to take that, it better take my pubes too. Um, <laughs> it did. Um, like, full out Brazil. Like, I was like, shit. But, like, the thing is, that was unfortunately a round trip ticket. Um, and like now, like, I'm just gonna say it's of the jungle out there, okay? Um, and, um, you know, but it's, I always, people are like, oh, cancer. I'm like, it's okay to laugh. That makes people uncomfortable that I joke about cancer. But it's like, life's a bitch, and so's my mother in law. So, like, we make it work, you know? Um, and so, that's just a little bit about what I got out of learning about Ethel Merman. She is not, she's not a mermaid. I learned that. Um, she's like somebody you should know. And so hopefully y'all know a little bit more now. Cool. Hi, I'm Neil Arsenti, producer of the podcast version of This One Woman. If you're enjoying this, come and see the show live and for free every fourth Monday of the month at Hopleaf. 5148 North Clark Street in Chicago. For more information, check out the website at thisonewoman.net or like us on Facebook. And now, back to the podcast. Next is Janky Modi. Janky is a solo performer, teacher, and a writer. She just performed her solo show at Phileo Solos. Here's Janky. Hi, everyone. I wore this for Ethel, but now I'm taking it off. It's too much. Um, 
So I, I had this whole plan to do like a Venn diagram comparing my life, um, comparing the life of Ethel Merman with me, a woman of equal stature and fame. Uh, but I couldn't super fill in the middle part very much for some reason, um, except besides the fact that like we both can sing, and I mean, I don't know, not, I can't sing as that well, but anyway, um, and except she was told that she should never take lessons. Um, I don't know who told her that, but they're like, have you ever taken a singing lesson, lesson Ethel? And she's like, no. And he's like, don't ever do it, because it'll mess up your voice. Which is like the dream for an actor. Like, don't ever get training. You're perfectly fine. Um, so uh, I do have a story for you all. It's a story of a discovery. My discovery of Ethel Merman. Uh, I never really grew up with show tunes. I do remember renewing the original cast recording of Cats from our public library a lot because it was full of painful emo songs and, and songs of striving that felt so great to me in my sad teenager emo soul. Um, but besides, besides that, there was not a really a lot of show tunes in my life. Many years later when I was all grown up, if that is even a thing, uh, I went to my friend's wedding. My friend and his wife are theater people. They are very cute and they are very intentional. Um, and at the reception, they had a photo booth where we could take pictures of ourselves and write little notes on them so that they could review them later in their memory book. I remember writing something like, I hope your marriage is more joyful and successful than the look on my face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So, I was going through some things at that time. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, when I was like writing that, I was like, it couldn't have been that bad, but I think it was like that bad. Um, they had cupcakes instead of cake, and uh, they had CDs for each of us to take home in case we wanted, um, if we wanted, and, and the songs were important to them as a couple. They were like, music that meant something to them that really spoke to like every aspect of their relationship and I really like music but I'll be honest I was I was more excited maybe to get just like the CD for free um, it was a really awkward wedding for me to be at it was like a reunion type situation there were lots of college people there who were still doing theater um, while I had taken a huge hiatus to start a family some of the people whom I didn't really like, who I thought were kind of like judgy bitches, and they thought the same thing about me because I am sometimes. <laughs> I faked all my interactions there and I used my toddler as a buffer. I smiled a lot. I don't typically smile a lot, but I did. Um, the end of the story in the college reunion type situation is that like, you know, like we're all bitches, but it's fine. It all works out. We're all people. <laughs> Some weeks later, I decided to play that CD in my car. I spent a lot of time in my car with my toddler driving back and forth from doctor's appointments to faraway places like Elgin. <laughs> I put the CD in and I skipped a lot of the songs. But then I got to this one song and I heard something that I'd never heard before. You're the top! <laughs> what is this? 
what is this sound? Um, the lyrics were really fun, comparing your love to great cellophane, ovaltine, a tamale, and the moon over Mae West's shoulder. But the voice was confusing to me. It was English, but it was foreign. I'm sure I was drawn to the brash, booming voice as much as anyone else, but also just that particular time of my life with lyrics like, I'm a frightened frog that can find no log to hop. <laughs> Taken fully out of context and away from that voice, it's really depressing sounding. <laughs> I listened to that song a bunch of times in a row when I got in the car to go to those appointments. And I rejected almost every song on the CD. Her voice felt strong and in charge and silly and happy and sacrificial and I couldn't really understand all these things together while I was struggling, struggling a lot with my own femininity at the time and what it means to be a woman. I'm obviously not Ethel Merman. Um, Ethel Merman has lost a child. When her child was 25, she committed suicide and she lost her child. So that's not something that I've ever been through. So I have nothing to compare that with. But when I heard this song for the first time, when I spent all those hours in the car to the doctor for the, for the different therapists, it's because I had also lost a child in utero. Not a human I had 25 years of history with and memories with, but a human whose decades of life I had already dreamed. And this is when I heard that song and fell in love with the idea that I could be strong and silly and loud and annoying and myself again. That was my introduction to Ethel Merman. Sadly, I will say that I found out two days ago that the version I had been listening to was actually set in Foster. <laughs> Stage is, uh, well, your ear stage, Angelica Davila. She is a stand-up comedian and an improviser, and you can catch her every other week at Comedy Sports in Chicago, and you can catch her right now at this one woman, Ethel Merman. Here's Angelica. I like it that you called it an ear stage. Um, so whenever I do this, uh, this one woman show, um, I like to play a game called uh, Celebrities, They're Just Like Us. <laughs> giggle, giggle. Um, and so uh, I wanted to see how is Ethel Merman just like me? And uh, so Ethel Merman was supposedly called the undisputed first lady of uh, musical comedy on stage. Um, and I realized we're not that different because I'm also called the undisputed first lady of uh, karaoke at 2 a.m. Uh, when everyone's plastered already. <laughs> because no one can argue against that because we all sound like dying whales by that point. And that's just fine. Um, as has been mentioned before, Ethel was also told that she should never take voice lessons. Um, and I've also been told a lot of things I shouldn't do. <laughs> such as, don't get into the car of a stranger, and yet here I am Ubering everywhere I want to go. <laughs> so times have definitely changed. Um, Ethel also had four husbands. Four. And I just want to know, how do you get a guy to go from wanting to eat your ass 
to saying, hey, will you marry me? Because if I could figure that out, I would make my mom very happy as well. Um, unlike Ethel, I am not a singer. I have a terrible voice. That's why I'm the queen of drunk karaoke. Um, but I am a writer. And as a writer, you get a lot of unsolicited advice from people on how to write, uh, such as, hey, uh, write every day. Write every day. Yeah, um, you know, I'm the kind of person that can't even remember to take out a tampon every four hours. I don't know about writing every day. Um, so I decided to take a page from Ethel on writing instead. And I'm literally taking a page uh, from her autobiographical chapter. Um, her chapter on her marriage to Ernest Bornine Born? Born? Born Born um, is literally a blank page in her book. And this is writing advice I could get behind. So suck it right every day. Because I found out what I'm doing. And now I actually have a full manuscript put together um, with such chapters as, uh, ooh, let's go with one. On my inability to stay on budget, blank page. On my inability to make decisions, blank page. On the time I dated a fuckboy, Blank page. And on why I traveled 6,123 miles to see my ex and fall down at his door. Blank page and is still pending. <laughs> Ethel supposedly shortened her last name uh, of Zimmerman to Merman uh, because it was, you know, a shorter stage name. Um, but it was only after her dad became upset that she was contemplating using her grandma's maiden name. And I know what you're thinking. Fragile masculinity. But I'm here to say no. What I think really happened was, dad in the audience, can you say what's on your note card? What did the officer molecule say to the suspect molecule? What did he say? I got my eye on you. Uh. What do you call, what do you call a fake noodle? What do you call it? An impasta. No. <laughs> Why can't you have a nose 12 inches long? Why? Because then it would be a foot. Oh, Dad, you know what? I'll keep Merman if you just don't say any dad jokes anymore. <laughs> so that's what I think really happened. <laughs> um, and a final note about Ethel. So her third husband, uh, Robert Six, uh, reportedly convinced Ethel to go back uh, to the stage after she had kind of given it up to become a housewife and a mom. Um, and I, when I first found that out, I was like, oh, that's actually so sweet. He must have realized that, like, you know, her heart belonged on the stage and wanted to help her out. No, <laughs> that was not it. Uh, he was actually the executive of Continental Airlines, and he wanted her on the stage so that he can get free publicity for his airline. Uh. Exactly. Ugh is right. But you know what? I can't blame him because at that time... Their publicity uh, was things like this ad that you see here. Not one passenger flirted with the hostess on flight two to Chicago. <laughs> so clearly anything Ethel was going to be doing on stage was going to be quite better than this. 
And also it proves that um, behind every successful company is a woman doing free work. <laughs> and I gotta say, I actually became upset when I found this out because then I went over to uh, Continental Airlines, who is a defunct company, or rather they were sold to United Airlines, uh, to their uh, Wikipedia. And Robert Six is all over their Wikipedia as like all the stuff that he did for the company, but nowhere was Ethel Merman mentioned. And I feel like, excuse me, she did a lot of free publicity for Continental Airlines. The least they could do is add her name in the Wikipedia page. <laughs> so I'm going to end my set by having a call to action here. And I hereby say that we should all create editor accounts on Wikipedia, go to the Continental Airline page, and add Ethel Merman's contribution because she deserves to be recognized for her work. And that's all I have for you. Next, we're going to hear from Lauren Huffman. And she got a special slot in the Ethel Merman show. So usually, the performers learn who their woman of honor is after they've already signed up to do the show that month. So then they have this inspiration and assignment to dive into whatever they want to about the woman. But we also realized when we were conceiving this show that sometimes there are people who we all just think, that's my gal. That's a woman I've always admired. I have a lot to say about. There's something I really want to share. So Tuna and I said, what if we have a spot that we use rarely, you know, you've got to keep it special, a spot we call That's My Gal, for someone to sign up after they've heard who the woman of honor is. So Tuna can correct me if I'm wrong. I think this might be one of the only That's My Gal slots we've ever actually given out, and that's what Lauren did. She heard... We were doing Ethel, and she said, I've got to be in it. So here's Lauren Huffman, the grand prize winner of the Ethel Merman That's My Gal performance opportunity. Some people say, there's no business like show business. It's like no business she knows. And that may be true, but Rose's turn will get a kick out of you. Anything you can do, she can do better. She can do anything better than you. Who? Ethel Merman. <laughs> Jesus, sorry. <laughs> Together, wherever she goes, she is known as the hostess with the mostess. Anything goes for her. Who? Ethel Merman. She has the sun in the morning and the moon at night, and she says it's delovely. As delovely as love? They say it's wonderful, marrying for love. But for a four-time divorcee, she ain't riding high. Maybe. She just got lost in their arms. Who? Ethel Merman. The best thing for you is to have something to dance about with an earful of music of Alexander's ragtime band, for she will have your health. Who? Ethel, Ethel Merman. Merman.
That's all I got. It was the title of all of her popular songs. Next up is Aaron McDavis. Aaron is a producer at Comedy Tub every Thursday at Chicago Joe's and also People of Comedy at the Juice Box, which is a new monthly show. You know, I love Aaron because I feel like he's almost like a philosopher talking about his thoughts as he goes into Ethel Merman. Here's Aaron. Actually, uh, I uh, studied theater and uh, had to do musical theater. Uh, and a lot of my uh, friends in musical theater uh, love to sing, like, you know, no, bitch, and like, show, and all that stuff. So, <laughs> so I have a kind of uh, love hate for it. <laughs> just, have, just having to hear that all the time. And <laughs> And they're not even, like, it's not even singing a song from Ethel Merman. They're just like, I'm going to the bathroom now. Or it's just like, it's, you know, just. So I got to hear this all the time. So that's, that's, that's what I, like, I think of every time I like, think of Broadway. Just that voice going, like. And um, so, yeah, I, I know some of her songs. I've also, uh, I know, uh, so uh, No Business Like Show Business is from uh, Annie Get Your Gun. I believe. Yes, and then get your gun. Um, I don't know if you guys uh, know some other songs uh, from Annie Get Your Gun, but uh, here's one. Um, uh, basically, uh, basically uh, Annie Get Your Guns about um, Annie Oakley, who used to, um, uh, uh, was a sharpshooter on, uh, I think it was it Buffalo Bills? Well, it had Buffalo Bills Wild West and so she got in these like crazy adventures on there. One of them was uh, she met an Indian tribe and uh, ended up being uh, 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 considered one of the Indians. So what do they do? They write a song about it. Um, here are the lyrics. <laughs> okay, like the Seminole Navajo Kickapoo, like those Indians, I'm an Indian too. Uh, Annie Oakley's a white woman, just you know. <laughs> And it's, you know, it's in that ethyl. I, the Seminole, Navajo, Hecapo. <laughs> I really need to. Then he goes, Asu, Asu. Just like Battle Axe, Hatchet Face, Eagle Nose. These are not actual Indians. <laughs> like those Indians, I'm an Indian too. <laughs> oh, it gets worse. Uh, <laughs> Uh, summer in, in summer, some Indian summer's day without a sound, I may hide away with big chief hole in the ground, and I'll have totem poles, tomahawks, pipes of peace, which will go to prove I'm an Indian too. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, right, yeah. Thing is, another time, uh, Indians weren't recognized as people as much, but. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just like skim through these lyrics. Um, uh, light, looking like a flower sack with two papooses on my back and three papooses on the way, like the Chippewa, Iroquois, Omaha, like those Indians, I'm an Indian too. And then they go, hey, yeah, 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 hey, yeah, yeah. You know, just. <laughs> here's the, like, I wasn't even looking for that. I was, I'm just researching, and but the thing is, during my research, I, because I, I know, like, Ethel Merman grew up in this town, I was like, She's gonna say something racist. Okay, she's gonna. 
It's just, <laughs> and the thing is, that's what got me th like thinking about like other things that uh, that I enjoy. Or I think some of us enjoy like uh, Disney films. They they are around the same uh, time as well, so they have their own <laughs> special songs. <laughs> We're gonna go with that. <laughs> First of all, I've always kind of like had like some beef with Disney, just on like uh, not even like going far back to like what 1930s or whatever. Just like going back to like uh, cartoons I know now, like um, Jungle Book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jungle Book, and then like remember like uh, basically. Uh, I noticed a pattern in Disney-like characters where uh, their white heroes uh, talk to animals, uh, their darker-skinned heroes uh, live with them. Because, <laughs> 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 like, yeah, Snow White, you know, she has birds around her. Like, uh, Cinderella, like, you know, she's, like, you know, uh, knitting clothes for mice and all this stuff, and she gets a fairy, you know, godmother and all this stuff. And then, like... Uh, and then when uh, you know, Mowgli's there, like, hey, let's put this brown boy into the jungle, raise, let him be raised by wolves. <laughs> and, just, and then, like, King Arthur, like, you know, Sword of Stone, he gets to be a king, gets to pull a sword out, and he's a new king. And then we go back to Mo Mowgli, and uh, his, like, what's the, uh, the uh, most famous uh, song in Jungle Book? The fair necessities, simple. But, yeah, don't strive for anything higher. Just stay here in the jungle, Mowgli. <laughs> Stay here in the jungle. <laughs> oh, and when did Princess and the Frog come out? Do you remember that date? Eight years ago. Eight years ago. Yeah, it it took the twenty first century for a black princess to be in Disney. <laughs> and what do they do? They turn her into a frog. <laughs> I'm not here to make you laugh. I'm here to make you think. Okay. Just. <laughs> just <laughs> All right, uh, but I'm going to go back to uh, the Disney songs. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, this one's from Peter Pan. Do you know, like, you know what song this is? Actually, there's two songs from Peter Pan. Uh, they involve Indians. <laughs> well, Native American people. But this is Peter Pan, so they're Indians. Um, I'm going to start with, <laughs> what made the red man red? <laughs> <laughs> You can buy this on DVD. This is, I'm saying, you can buy this. That's just crazy. Why, uh, why does he ask you how? No, you don't have to answer. It's not like, why does he? No, it's not. Uh, why does he ask you how? Once the engine didn't know all the things that he know now, but the engine he sure learned a lot, and it's all from asking how. Yeah, yes, just remember that when you're thinking happy thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one. I think they might have cut this one out uh, of the movie, but I could be wrong. Um, the title of the song is Ugg Awa. <laughs> and it goes, Ugg Awa, Ugg Awa. And that's basically the bulk of the lyrics, is them just going, Ugg Awa, Ugg Awa, and dancing, and like, yeah. <laughs> And then when you finally get to the uh, words, they say, um, when we get in trouble, there's just one thing to do. I'll just send, send for Tiger li Lily. I'll send for Peter Pan. We'll be coming willy-nilly-nilly. <laughs> Beat on a drum, and I will come. And I will come and save the brave, noble red skin. Thanks, Peter Pan. <laughs> 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 
Oh, here's, here's one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> I'll end on this one. Zippity doo dah. <laughs> Zippity day. Wonderful feeling. Wonderful. Does anybody know where that song is from? Yeah. Some people. Song in the South. Where it's a, it was a, like a full length movie uh, about how fun it was to be on plantations. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you think I was this this bad now? You should have saw me like during Black History Month. Like I, I was. Oh, I had like so, oh god, it was just. <laughs> but anyway, at least we don't have like a little bit more progressive now, I guess. But then I still gotta like uh, think about like stuff I like now. Even you know that's not even Disney. Like um, I believe we're all feminists here. Uh, I like to think of myself as one, but I also listen to a lot of rap, so it's kind of hard for me to like judge these people too harshly when I'm listening to, like Ying Yang Twins. You know, I'm just <laughs> Ying Yang Twins is very like has very very creepy rap music. As <laughs> one where they just they literally just whisper in a woman's ear the entire time. They don't know this woman. <laughs> they go, Hey, little mama, let me whisper in your ear. And the chorus is that. As I, like, the hook for that is, where do you see my dick? <laughs> <laughs> so I got to catch myself, too. You know, just, um, maybe, like, how many, like, Ethel Mermaid will be a little less, like, where do you see my dick? Oh, you know, just like, you know, just, all right, that's it. Thank you very much. Um, out, our Ethel Merman show is Maggie Tomasek. Maggie is a storyteller, a comedian, and a member of the all-female Beastie Boys tribute band called She's Crafty. When she's performing with She's Crafty, we know her as Mag Rock. But tonight, she's just Maggie Thomasek. Mm, thank you very much. Uh, so I came across this Ethel Merman quote while I was doing some research, and I'm absolutely in love with it. So when she was asked whether she gets nervous or afraid when she's on stage, she said, I'm not going to do the voice, but uh, <laughs> I can never remember being afraid of an audience. If the audience could do better, they'd be up here on stage and I'd be out there watching them. <laughs> that is so badass. I'm like, no offense, audience, right? Uh, uh, but now I'm not claiming to be as confident or as talented or as anything as Ethel Merman, but that sentiment does resonate with me as a performer because as long as I can remember, I've never really been afraid of being in front of a, of a crowd. Um, when I was a kid, I did, I dreamed of being a star on stage. I, this is what I would do. I would shut myself in the bathroom and I'd like perform dance routines in front of the mirror. And then I would balance on the side of the bathtub and pretend it was like a tightrope. And then I would um, swing on the towel rack, not safe, uh, <laughs> and pretend it was like a trapeze. Uh, apparently I liked the circus, I don't know. Um, and then my mom would you know, drag me on her shopping trips to Sears or Brandeis, anyone remember those stores? Uh, and I would just like disappear into the clothing racks and I would, um, I would grab like coats or shirts and I would pretend they were people and I would dance with them. Um, uh, singing, dancing, circus performing, I was into it, didn't matter what it was, and I was never embarrassed. 
But I did grow up in more of a sports-loving household, so theater and the arts weren't really the thing. Um, but I did also love sports, so it was cool. Um, I could, you know, perform on the soccer field or the softball diamond or in the pool, like, publicly. And then I could continue my imaginary uh, song and dance and circus performance uh, schedule in private. Um, I did beg my mom to let me take dance classes, though, but we didn't... Um, we didn't, uh, we didn't have money, so uh, since I was the youngest of four kids, it just wasn't in the cards. Um, but I asked my mom a lot if I could do it, and then finally, after a couple of my older siblings were out of the house, she finally relented, and I enrolled in dance class at age 10. And I guess that about a month later, my mom probably began deeply regretting this decision uh, because I started tap dancing everywhere. Um, I couldn't just like stand still while we were in line at the grocery store. I had to just like practice, <laughs> you know, my shuffle ball change. And just like everywhere I walked, I was like, just like, can't you walk like a normal kid? I mean, like. 10-year-olds are already annoying, but like a 10-year-old with basic tap dancing knowledge, like, oh boy. Um, so my dancing obsession continued bleeding into other parts of my life. So one time uh, I was playing soccer and our team, we were very good and we were just, you know, destroying the other team. And so uh, I was playing goalie. And so I was seeing like zero action on my half of the field. So I figured since all of the game action was on the other half of the field, I would use that as the op uh, time to practice my dance recital routine. Um, and I really didn't think anyone was watching me, but I was like, oh, the action's down there. No one can see me. Like, what? Um, but then at halftime, when we all went to the sideline, uh, all of the parents started applauding for me. And, uh, and I was like, oh, no. And then I just like took a bow. Um, and my mom still tells that story to this day. Uh, I was also the star of every family wedding reception. Um, I think fully 20% of all white people in Nebraska who can do the running man learned it from me at an American Legion Hall in the early 90s. Um, I loved singing, too. I always had a knack for memorizing song lyrics, and I would always sing along with the radio, but I wasn't actually good at singing. Uh, never let that stop me. Um, I was passable enough to kind of like meld into the choir in school, uh, but once I got to middle school, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try out for show choir, you know? That's what the cool kids do. Um, and uh, I tried out and was promptly rejected. Um, in retrospect, my audition song selection of Edelweiss was definitely out of my range. But I'd been watching uh, Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer perform it for like a decade, and I was 1,000% sure that I sounded just like them. Um, by the time I got to high school, sports had taken over most of my extracurricular life, though I did continue taking dance class, and I never stopped singing along with the radio. Um, our dance recital performances were at Omaha's Orpheum Theater, which is this gorgeous 2,600-seat theater, um, and it would be almost full. Like, that many people were coming to watch, you know, girls and a few boys of all ages, you know, 
perform uh, their dance recitals uh, from the Pat Carlson Dance Studio. Um, and I loved being on that stage. Though still to this day, all of my stress dreams are dance recital related. <laughs> like I forgot my costume or I didn't go to class all year and I gotta do the dance. Um, in college, I had the chance to participate in something called Strollers, which was kind of like a, it was like a vaudeville competition. And so you'd have this like co-ed team you had to audition for, and then like you'd like create these skits and then you'd have to like do songs and dance and then in between it was like all this terrible innuendo and uh, I, I'm seeing your faces. Every time I try to explain it, I realize how dumb it sounds. Um, and the older I get, I realize like it was really dumb, but it was so fun and it's definitely the closest I've ever been and probably will ever be to performing in a musical. Um, it was a tough crowd though. Uh, hundreds of drunk fraternity guys booing and heckling and yelling stuff like, take your shirt off. Um, but those ding-dongs didn't intimidate me, and their bullshit just made me and my castmates stronger. <laughs> um, for the next decade after college, I had few opportunities performed. I worked nights and weekends as a sports journalist, and I lived in you know smaller cities without huge art scenes. Eventually, I married a performer. He did improv and sketch comedy, and consequently, I went to approximately 4,380 terrible improv shows, <laughs> and like 10 good ones, you know. Um, to no one's surprise, I'm now divorced. <laughs> um, when I moved to Chicago, I decided to take a stand-up comedy class. I'd always loved stand-up and comedy in general, and I needed to make new friends in a new city, so it, it really just made sense. And I enjoyed it, and I, um, you know, stand-up eventually led to storytelling, and um, that, you know, comedy scene uh, led to me meeting some good friends who shared this love of comedy and performing, and also music and dancing. Um, but rather than, you know, join the musical arts and theater, we started an all-female BC Boys tribute band. Um, so seven years later, I get to use my knack for memorizing lyrics, my love of dancing, and my mostly no-fear approach of being on stage about once a month in venues around Chicago and the Midwest, and maybe one day the world. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the Beastie Boys songs that we do is called Make Some Noise. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but the chorus goes, make some noise if you're with me. And they repeat it a lot at the end. And every time we do it, we turn into Ethel Merman voice. <laughs> and it ends up being like, make some noise if you're with me. Um, and there's always like two people in the crowd that are like, I see you, I see you. And everyone else is like, what is that? Uh, but before nearly every show, we have the same routine. Like I'm cool, calm, collected, as Ad-Rock says, and my bandmates are always nervous. But I always figure like no matter how big or small the crowd is, I don't care because I know that we're awesome and that they're gonna love us. And if they don't, well, they can go fuck themselves. You know what I mean? So, in conclusion, here's to Ethel Merman, who showed us all that there's no need to fear an audience. Just get on stage, do what you love. That's all there is to it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. This was fun. I'm glad we're talking about Ethel Merman today. I know. I know.
it was a great time. Um, so I'm looking forward to next month where we're going to be doing, uh, where we're going to be talking about Debbie Harry I know, from Blondie. That's a good one. I've definitely done some Blondie at karaoke before, so pretty excited. Are you more of a like with a tide is high, or what would you sing? One way or another, I'm gonna find you. I'm gonna get you, get you, get you, Kenna. Oh, that's a really good one. I like that one. Thank you. So, see you next month when we do This One Woman, Debbie Harry at the Hop Leaf. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This One Woman was created and produced by Kenna Linoff and Cynthia Scherpetz, who also hosted and wrote this podcast. Music for This One Woman podcast was written and performed by John Steinmeier. The This One Woman podcast was produced by myself, Neil Arsenti. We'll see you next month.